Well, if you have your Bible, uh, please open with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be continuing uh, our study there. We're almost done with John 6. Uh, we have uh, this week uh, and Lord willing next week and then uh, we will uh, move on to uh, kind of our, our series in the summer uh, that will be a whole series on uh, the church. Uh, and uh, so looking forward to uh, talking uh, through that with you uh, in future weeks. But uh, today we are still in John 6, uh, and I am still uh, very excited to be preaching uh, from this gospel as well. And uh, there, there have been uh, several moments in history that you could call watershed moments, uh, that they are uh, events that are so uh, big and so impactful to nations, to societies, that uh, they change the way uh, the, the world has uh, functioned and operated. Uh, easy one to look at in the 20th century would be World War II. Uh, in the 21st century, now, we could look at 9-11, and uh, we may be living through uh, one of these events right now. Uh, you may tell uh, your kids in the future what life was like before the coronavirus. Uh, and uh, in, in my heart of hearts, I, I hope and I pray that life isn't uh, too drastically changed, but uh, it, it just might be. So uh, there are certain events in history that are watershed points where everything before was one way and everything after is another. Uh, but then there are also individual life events uh, in our lives personally that have a, a similar uh, way of uh, changing and transforming things. Uh, some of those events are, are great uh, and wonderful, right? Like, like getting married or, or having children. Uh, once that happens, life is going to be different from that point forward. Uh, and uh, there are other life-changing events uh, that can happen that we don't necessarily plan on. Uh, car accidents, uh, injuries, uh, other things of uh, uh, loss of job or other decisions that we make, such as moving to another state uh, or another country. Uh, and uh, as I was uh, reflecting on this, as a pastor, I get to be involved in, in many of those very large and, and momentous life-changing events, uh, births, deaths, uh, marriages, uh, I, I get to, to be there, but I also get to be there uh, when, when, when life is hard. Uh, and uh, it is a, a privilege and an honor to be there when life uh, is hard. Uh, and uh, ministry has a lot of joys and a, a lot of burdens uh, with it. And that's, uh, I was listening to John MacArthur uh, speak a little bit uh, this week, and he, he was reflecting on 50 years of ministry. And he was saying how much joy he has seen uh, in that time, but also how much heartache he has experienced. And, and the heartache in pastoral ministry, it doesn't come from having to, to speak at funerals, because funerals can be wonderful if the person knew the Lord. And we know that that person is now in the presence of the Lord. Uh, and counseling can also be uh, hard at times, but it can also be joyful because there is nothing uh, greater or very few things that are greater than, than seeing a, a marriage reconciled and then seeing uh, sin and temptation overcome and to see people uh, changed and transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Th those are, are great joys in ministry. But I, I would say that uh, the, the hardship of pastoral ministry comes uh, in, in seeing people love sin and pursue sin rather than pursuing Christ. That's really hard to see. And it's really hard to see people who, who have heard the truth, who know the truth. It's really hard to see them walk away from Christ. And I've seen this uh, a lot, regrettably so, in youth ministry. Youth ministry is, uh, is outreach ministry. Uh, you're working with students, you're, you're sharing the gospel with them, you're trying to, to teach them and point them to Christ. But, but they don't always follow Christ. And so it can be hard. And so as we come to this portion in John 6, we're, we're really coming to a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. 
It's important for us to, to realize that. This, this is a, a, a life-altering moment uh, in his life and in his ministry and also in the lives of his disciples. Uh, and, and here we have to, to read this section and, and realize that disciples here does not immediately equal someone who genuinely believes. Disciple is just a follower, a learner. And we're going to see that there are some who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus, who will ultimately cease from following him. And as we're going to, to read this this morning, it's easy for us to kind of, to kind of breeze past how hard and how discouraging that might have been to Jesus. Even though he, he knew it was coming, uh, it wasn't a surprise to him, but it would still be grievous to him. It would still be sad to see the, these, these crowds, all of this group of people who had been following him for a time, cease from following him anymore. And that would have been painful. And again, if, if, you, if you are a part of the church, if you walk with Jesus long enough, you, you will begin to see the same thing. And, and that's, that's hard. It's hard to see others that we, we know and we love walk away from Christ. So this is going to be a, a, a watershed moment. And this watershed moment comes at the end of a, a long teaching of Jesus. As we've looked at a good portion of John chapter 6 from verse 22 through verse 59, which we finished last week, uh, is uh, the bread of life discourse. And it's this interaction of Jesus teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. And what we're going to look at this week and next week are the, the results of the discourse of how do the, the people who heard his teaching, how do they respond to it? And, and the response is going to be seen uh, in verses 60 through 71. We're going to look at 60 through 66 today and then 67 through 71 next week. But uh, this is coming on the heels of Jesus speaking some hard truths. Uh, saying some hard things, uh, which we looked at in the, the two previous weeks here. We, we've seen that, that Jesus claimed to have a heavenly origin, uh, and that was a stumbling block to the Jews. They're like, wait, we know your parents. Is, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? They don't, didn't we see you growing up? That, that was a stumbling block to them. They also uh, was a hard truth when, when Jesus claimed that they could do nothing to save themselves. That they had to to trust in and believe in him alone. He also was a stumbling block when he claimed to be the Messiah and that he claimed to to come to give his life as a sacrifice. That, that blew their conception of what the Messiah was to be. They didn't expect the Messiah to come and sacrifice himself. They expected the Messiah to come and to to conquer, to destroy the Romans who were in control over the Israelites at that time. And then... Uh, Ultimately, what we looked at last week, that Jesus claimed that he alone could give them spiritual and eternal life. Uh, and he offended their sensibilities by saying, uh, he, he gave us description of what it means to look upon him and to believe in him. He says, you have to, to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to take Jesus into the, your innermost being. And uh, we talked about even the act of eating being an act of faith, right? You're trusting in faith that what you are consuming is not poisoned. And that it's not going to kill you. Uh, and that's why Jesus is using that language. And now as we come to these verses, we're going to see the results. So look with me at verse 60 and following there in John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so what we're going to see this week and next week is uh, how people responded to these hard sayings of Jesus, these hard truths, these truths that were offensive. How did they respond? And there's going to be a a contrast. This week we're really looking at how uh, false disciples respond to the word of Christ, how they respond to the hard sayings of Jesus. And next week we're going to look at how, how true disciples receive and respond to the word of God, the word of Christ, even if it is difficult to receive. Now, Jesus spoke these hard truths to this synagogue in Capernaum, and these hard truths, they are, they are still hard. They are still offensive to our sensibilities. They're still difficult for us to accept today. They have the same effect. And so we have to, to, to see and to, to learn what these truths reveal about ourselves. Because how we respond to the words of Christ is going to reveal our relationship to Him. Uh, and as we're going to, to see here, there's really only two categories of relationship with Christ. There are, there are those who are His disciples and there are those who are not. Now, sometimes there's a, there's, there's a blurring of these categories in the sense that there are some who think they are disciples, but they're really not. Uh, and that's what I'm going to, to mean when I speak of false disciples this morning. Those who, who, who claim to follow Christ in name, but they really are not his disciples. They're really not following him. This is uh, Luke 6. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then they're following Jesus for a time, but they're ultimately not going to continue following him. And so there's two categories. You either accept and believe who Jesus is and what he is saying, or you don't. Uh, and this is what we're going to see. But how would we recognize which category we are in, or if we are miscategorizing ourselves? If we think we are a disciple, but we really are not. What is it that marks a false disciple? That's what we're going to look at today. And some of you may be familiar with the comedian Jeff Foxworthy. In a series of jokes, you might be a redneck if, and then he kind of fills in the blank. So today is going to be, you might be a false disciple if. Uh, and so we're, we're going to walk through uh, this text and, and make observations. Because as we, as we look and see what a false disciple is, we're also going to learn and grow in what a true disciple is, what a true disciple looks like, what that true disciple will not do. So we're going to see four marks of a false disciple this morning. And the first mark, you might be a disciple if you grumble when confronted by God's word. This is in verses 60 through 62. And we read them just a couple minutes ago. I'll point you back to them. Again, when when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And when they say this is a hard saying, they're not saying it's hard to understand. They're not saying I can't wrap my brain around this. They're meaning this is this is harsh. This is offensive. The word here means uh, to to be dried out, to be uh, brittle and, and stiff, inflexible. This is a word that describes offense. Uh, and uh, then they ask this question. So this is a hard saying, and they say, who can listen to it? And that's a rhetorical question intended to mean really no one can listen to it. And the idea of listening is accepting it. I mean, this is hard. Who, who can accept this? Jesus just said we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Who, who can accept what he is saying here? And the implication uh, is that, yeah, nobody can then verse 61 tells us that, that Jesus had a supernatural knowledge of this. So Jesus wasn't shocked. He didn't go into despair when his disciples began to grumble and complain about what he had said. Jesus just says, hey, is, is this offensive to you? He was aware of their grumbling. 
And he says, is this, is this offend you? Literally, is this scandalizing to you? It's a Greek word where we get the idea of scandal. Does this upset you? Uh, and then, then he points to something. Jesus does this so frequently where he, he argues from something that is lesser to something that is greater. Uh, and, and he's going to point and say, if, if Jesus speaking about needing to believe and trust in him, and if you don't trust in him, then you will not have eternal life. He points to that. He says, if you, if that is scandalizing to you, if it's, if it's a scandal for me to say that you must eat and, and drink Jesus, he points to an even bigger scandal. So something that is even more difficult to wrap your, your head and your mind, uh, and it would have been even more difficult for the Jews to accept, would be the fact that he, as the Messiah, is, has come to, to die. He has come to sacrifice himself, and then once he has given his life on the cross, he will raise from the, the dead, and then he is ultimately going to ascend into heaven. So he's saying, hey, if, if, if this is scandalizing to you, just wait. <laughs> and, and if this is upsetting to you, just wait. There's going to be even more offense, and there, there is no greater scandal than the cross. There is nothing more offensive, there is nothing more polarizing in the world than what Jesus did on the cross. You either believe it and accept it, or you you reject it, and and life and eternity hangs in the balance. But ultimately what we see here is this, this group of disciples, these people who had been following Jesus for a time... And they have been confronted with the truth of God's word here in John 6. And as they are confronted with this truth, they have a decision to make. Okay, As the truth of God confronts us, we either say, ouch, that hurts. I need to change my life in submission to that. Or we say, ouch, that hurts. I don't want that anymore. I'm going to walk away from that. And we see this over and over again in Scripture, you know, of people facing this exact confrontation. When the Word of God comes and confronts something in your life, how do you respond? You see this with, with Pharaoh and Moses, right? Moses comes and speaks to Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, and what does Pharaoh say? No way, Moses. Uh, and uh, so, so he, he's confronted and Pharaoh says no. We see this with King Herod and John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, hey, King Herod, it's not lawful for you to take your brother's wife. And King Herod has a choice. He either turns in repentance or he throws John in prison. And he opted for the latter. We have recently read this multiple times as we've been working through the book of Jeremiah this month and last month, right? When Jeremiah wrote a prophecy against King Jehoiakim and sent it to him in a scroll, as the scroll of the prophecy against him is read to him, King Jehoiakim says, okay, tear that out and throw it into the fire. That's not receiving the word of God. That's a very clear picture of rejecting the word of God. Then something that we read just this past week in Jeremiah chapters 42 and 43, after... Everything that Jeremiah has said has come true. Jerusalem has been invaded for the third time. There's been a third deportation, a third exile. Uh, And everything that he said has come true. And then those who are remaining in the land, they they come and they ask Jeremiah from a word from Yahweh. Like the the commanders of the army who, who were left, they say, Jeremiah, can you give us a word? We need to know what to do. Should we run to Egypt? and try and find safety in Pharaoh, or should we stay here? And they say this in Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 6. They say, Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So they say, hey, no matter what you say, we'll listen. Just bring us the word of Yahweh. And then about ten days later, Jeremiah brings the word, and he says, hey, stay here in the land. And you'll be blessed. If you go to Egypt, it's going to be ugly. God will send Nebuchadnezzar and he will get you in Egypt and you will be destroyed. And then the very next chapter, chapter 43, this is the first four verses. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord, their God, which the Lord, their God had sent him to them. Azariah, the son of Hoshiah and Johanan, the son of Kareah. 
And all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. So, so on the one hand, they're saying, Whatever God says, we'll obey it. And then as soon as the word of God comes to them, what do they do? Well, we're still going to do what we want to do. Can we see this over and over again? And it's a confrontation that we have on a daily basis ourselves. But, but oftentimes we, we sound like the musical artist Meatloaf. You guys are familiar with that song? I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Right? Sometimes we say, oh, I'll, I'll obey anything you want, God. Oh, you know what? That, that, except for that. that that's, that's the one thing I won't do. And, and we begin to see as we read God's word, we, we see our hearts, we see the, these confrontations, and ultimately we also will begin to see those pet sins, those little pockets of idolatry in our hearts, in our lives. And those pockets of idolatry are, are identified when we, when we see and read the word of God, and we, we see my life is not in obedience to what God is saying here. And then we have that same choice. You say, ouch, that hurts. Am I going to, to change and submit myself to God and his word? Or am I going to, to run away from that? Am I going to walk away? Am I going to, to grumble and make excuses? Again, our response to Jesus will reveal the nature of our relationship with him. And that word grumble is used intentionally here. It draws our hearts and our minds back to the Old Testament, right? The first generation of Israel grumbling and complaining in the desert when God instructed them. And so we have to to see that and keep that in mind. And also what happened to them when they didn't obey. When they were confronted with the word and they didn't respond in faith and in obedience. And so there's a simple question for us to ask ourselves from these verses of, hey, when I am confronted by the word of God, how do I respond? What do I do? Am I willing to examine my heart, my life, when the word of God addresses the sins in my life? The, the uh, The great reformer Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses that, that kick-started the, the Reformation. And the very first of those theses said this. said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so I would say, in, in one sense, when we, when we first come to know Jesus, there's a really big U-turn. Okay, because prior to that, our entire life was moving towards sin. And so there has to be a change of heart and a change of mind, followed by a change of action. We about face. I'm pursuing sin, now I'm going to pursue Christ. There's a big U-turn, but then as we are now walking towards Christ, we begin to see all of these other smaller areas in our life that we also need to make small U-turns. And as we, every time we see sin crop up, every time we're like, okay, I'm walking this way, and then suddenly I'm facing this way again. How did that happen? We realize, oh, I need to about face. I need to confess. I need to repent. So our repentance should be continual in the Christian life. And we should be continually being confronted by the Word of God. But the mark of a false disciple so that when they are confronted by God's word, they will just grumble and murmur and complain, but they will not change. Secondly, what we see in verse 63, Mark number 2, you might be a false disciple if you trust in your flesh rather than God's word. If you look with me at that verse, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's amazing is that Jesus summarizes the gospel in this verse. Proclaims what he has been proclaiming uh, throughout his ministry. That we are unable to save ourselves. The whole conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 
He's telling the most religious man, the teacher in Israel, he's saying, hey, you can't save yourself. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. That's what he is saying here. We are unable to save ourselves. The flesh uh, is not able to give spiritual life at all. There's a double negative in the Greek, which we talked about. Uh, the, the flesh is not able to do nothing, uh, which in English is different. But in the Greek, it's, it's very emphatic. It doesn't cancel each other out. It just means a greater emphasis. And that's what we see. So if the flesh doesn't give life, what does? Jesus says it is the spirit who gives life, who makes alive. And then Jesus says that his words are spirit and they are life. Literally, they are the spirit. They are the life. And the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, many of them had been following him for some time but what he's saying if if you don't believe and trust in Jesus nothing else is going to make sense no, nothing else is going to be comprehended if if you are rejecting who Jesus is every, everything else is is going to be a stumbling block again that's where uh, they keep trying to interpret Jesus literally uh, we see that over and over in John's gospel as well. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again, Nicodemus is scratching his head. How can a man be born a second time when he's old? Can't, he can't go back into the womb. What are you talking about, right? Uh, and again, if, if you don't first believe in Christ, nothing else is going to be understood. And as Jesus speaks to this people in the synagogue, saying that they have to rightly believe that Jesus is the bread of life. And that's what this whole chapter has been about, that Jesus is the only one who can give life, and Jesus is the one who sustains life. Just like as bread does that physically, Jesus does that spiritually. But these false disciples, they do not understand, they are not convinced, they do not believe the words of Jesus. They continue to trust in themselves, in their own wisdom, in their own understanding, they continue to trust in what they are able to do, to do, not what he is able to do. And again, this is this is the heart motivation behind their grumbling. Right? We first see the grumbling, and now we see the, the heart motivation behind it, which is what Jesus is speaking to and addressing. That hey, in in your own estimation, the flesh is not good for for anything. You can't get spiritual life from a physical body. Only God is able to do that. And again, that, that is our, uh, our modern sensibility as well. Very much so. That uh, I am able to do anything that I put my mind to. There's a very famous British poem written in 1875 by a, a poet named William Ernest Henley. You may have heard of it. It's uh, entitled Invictus. Uh, very famous. And the story behind the poem was that when the, uh, the, the poet was 16 years old... Uh, his left leg was amputated because of complications uh, resulting from tuberculosis. Uh, and as he was a, a little bit older, a few years later, it looked like uh, his right leg was also going to need to be amputated. Right? And so he, he sought the help uh, of uh, a renowned surgeon uh, in Great Britain at that point in time. And uh, and the, the surgeon was able to to... to Operate and do a surgery to save the leg. And uh, as uh, the Henley was going through this trial, he he wrote the poem. And I'm not going to read it all. Uh, I'm just going to read the, the first and last stanza. But it, it gives us an understanding of the mindset that he was in during this trial. Right? It begins with this: Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be. For my unconquerable soul. You, you see his attitude there. And this is how the, the poem ends. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scrolls. He says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Again, that, that is the default position of the human heart. That I am in control of my own destiny. I, I rule. I reign over everything. And that's also the mark of a false disciple. 
because Jesus can't be Lord and he can't, he's not going to co-reign with you. That's the whole point of discipleship. You're saying, Jesus, you're the captain of my soul. Uh, I'm no longer on the throne. I'm following you. The the idea of discipleship, uh, the idea of the lordship of Christ is arranging ourselves underneath Jesus. We're saying, I'm following you. I am dependent upon you. You are the bread of life. But, But as we... If we have this heart motivation that I am the captain of my soul, that's naturally going to lead to, yeah, when we are confronted, we're, we're going to grumble, we're going to murmur, we're not going to accept what Jesus and, and the Word of God say to us. And what, what's interesting, just tracing a thread here in John chapter 6, in verse 40, Jesus says, now, whoever lo- looks on him and believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 54, uh, he says, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have eternal life. But here, what is it that is equated with eternal life? It's the words of Christ. It is the, the word of Jesus, that is the Spirit, that is life. It, to believe in Jesus uh, is to have the Spirit, and the Spirit comes through the, the Word of Christ. And so does eternal life. Uh, and the Spirit of God works and moves through the Word of God, so the two work together to, to bring forth life in those who trust Him. But, but false disciples, they put no trust in God's Word. They just trust in themselves. And I am the captain of my soul. Which then leads to a third mark of a false disciple. Which we see in in verses 64 and and 65. It says, you might be a false disciple if you refuse to believe and submit to God's word. If you refuse to believe and submit to God's word. Look, Look with me at those two verses. Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so Jesus begins to to speak and call out those who who really didn't believe in him right he says there are some among you who do not believe and then we have a a parenthetical statement in the second part of of verse 64 that was more than likely added by the apostle john of just explaining jesus knew about this jesus has a a perfect knowledge of the, the human person okay we saw this back in in john chapter 2 if you turn back just a couple of pages Very similar circumstances at the very end of John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Say, now when Jesus, or when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself, and that's actually the same word as believe. So they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew an exact number of people. How many? All people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus has a a prior knowledge of those who would believe and who would not believe. So Jesus, when they start to grumble and complain, he's not going into panic mode or curling into the fetal position. His knees haven't buckled. He's he, He is aware of what is taking place. But Jesus then points back to what he said earlier in the chapter in verses 37 and 44. Again, if you turn back with me to John 6, verse 37... Jesus speaks of salvation and he's explaining why the Jews that he was speaking to were rejecting him. And he, in essence, points to uh, the, the big plan of salvation that God the Father is going to give a people to God the Son. And all those whom the Father gives to the Son, the Son will save. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So Jesus is pointing back to what he said there, and he's, and he's saying it again, because sometimes we need things repeated. He says, hey, this is why I said to you, no one can come to me. So Jesus states an impossibility, no one's able to come. And then he states an exception, unless this happens, unless the Father grants it to them, no one can come to Jesus in faith. Salvation is a gift from God. And we know that if we have responded in faith, that that is a gift that God has given to us. It's nothing that we do. Again, we naturally want and move towards sin. We don't naturally pursue Christ. So Jesus is connecting things back to what he has already said. And what we see here, that, this, that, that they will not believe, that they refuse to believe, that they are not believing. And again, think about this. They are not believing even though they have been walking and seeing everything that Jesus has done. Sometimes we think, oh, if I just had seen all of the miracles that Jesus performed, then I would believe. It's like, no, that's not true. There's thousands of people who saw Jesus perform miracles and they didn't believe in him. And that's what we see right here in this very time. Remember, the previous day, so Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, the previous day Jesus fed close to 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. With a little boy's lunch, he fed 20,000 people. And so they saw this miracle that he performed, but they were still not willing to believe. They were still not willing to submit their lives to him. And such a refusal to, to believe and submit to God's word, it doesn't change the truthfulness of God's word. It doesn't change the nature of God's word. Christ's word is still true whether we are willing to accept it or not. There's a story of uh, a captain of a Navy ship who's looking out into the darkness of night and he, he sees lights out ahead. So he, he, he signals and he tells the signal man to, to send a message. He says to the other uh, light, hey, alter your course 10 degrees south. And then he, they get a, a re- return message that says, you alter your course 10 degrees north. And the, the captain became angry. His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. He says, I am the captain. And they get a message back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman third class. And immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear that it would prompt. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. The response comes back, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) And many of us try to have that type of showdown with God in his word, don't we? We we, we try and and argue it and one up, only realizing that who's going to win that battle, right? As big as a battleship is... It's going to lose against the lighthouse. It's going to to lose against the land. But so often we we lose sight again of who Jesus is because we have moments of unbelief. There's moments that we come to God's word and we are confronted by it, yet we do not submit to it. The book of James Verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, James says, Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. So there's one sense, when when you come on Sunday mornings and you hear the Word of God proclaimed, you are coming and looking in a mirror. You you are coming to to learn more and more about yourself, who you are in light of God's truth. And there's a sense that as you open up your Bibles during the week and as you read God's Word on your own, you are coming and you are hearing from God. And that is good, but it's not enough. James says you can't just hear from God and his word. What do you have to do? There's an element that you have to, to hear the word of God and then you have to act upon it. Because if you, if you only hear, what are you doing? You are deceiving yourself. Right? You're, you're coming and seeing yourself clearly and plainly. And then 
you're walking away unchanged. Now, now most of you, as you got ready today, a couple weeks ago when we were uh, in pajama church time, uh, you didn't have to look in the mirror before you came to church, right? You could just kind of roll out of bed, open up your computer, and, and you'd go from there. Right? I had to get ready, so I was a little bitter about that. But, uh, uh, but, but you didn't have to, to get ready in that sense. But most of you, I would assume, as you came to church today, you looked in the mirror. Right? You, you combed your hair, you got ready. And that's what James is speaking about. Reading the Word of God and not doing anything as a result of it is like looking at yourself in the mirror, seeing all of the craziness. If I had hair, it used to be crazy, but... It was seeing all of the craziness and then doing nothing. We have to respond to God's word. And again, this is a distinguishing mark of a false disciple. That they will refuse to believe and submit to the word of God. They will hear it, but they will walk away unchanged. Because... They trust in themselves because they grumble and they murmur when they are confronted by the word of God. Peter T. Forsyth said the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Such a, so true. That we have to, to look and understand, if we are going to be disciples, that we, we view Him as our Lord, as our Master. And that we have to be willing to submit to and follow Him. And again, that's the mark of a true disciple. The true Christian has found His Master. It's not ourselves. It's Christ. Uh, another quote that, that comes to my mind right now that uh, I forget who said it, but that, that we have found the problem and the problem is us. Uh, and that's what we have to, to see and to understand. And if the problem is us, we have to look to the solution outside of us. We must look to Christ. And you might be a false disciple if you grumble when confronted by God's word, if you trust in your flesh rather than God's word, if you refuse to believe in and submit to God's word. And then finally, you might be a false disciple if you follow Jesus for only a brief period of time. We see this in verse 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a very sad verse, isn't it? All of those disciples who had been following him, without really believing in him, they, they departed. They no longer walked after him. These disciples were probably those from chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, who after Jesus fed the 20,000, they immediately wanted to make him king. Say, hey, this guy can lead us. This guy can provide for us. Let's make him king and have him go defeat Caesar. And Jesus is, I don't want any part of that. It's not the time and it's not the way that he was supposed to become king. So also, probably those disciples spoken of in verse 26, where Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That there are some who follow Jesus because of what he can do for them. They don't want Jesus. They just want the benefits of Jesus. So all of those who had been following him without really believing in him, they are scandalized by the truths that he teaches in this discourse. These disciples, again, they didn't really want Jesus. They didn't believe in him as the bread of life. They didn't say, I need Jesus or I'm going to perish. And, and you can... You can imagine, if we were just observing this, if, if, we're, if we're, we're there and we're watching, 
how discouraging that would be if you're one of the the 12, uh, and, and even if you're just an outside uh, consultant, so to speak, kind of a put ourselves in the shoes of a modern-day church consultant, say, Jesus, you have this all wrong. Whatever you said, it offended a whole bunch of people. So the fact that all of these people are leaving, you've got to change your message. You need to change your whole ministry philosophy. Now, if all these people are leaving, you're, you're doing something wrong. Right? But what is taking place here is exactly what Jesus had said the church would be like. Why don't you turn briefly over to, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is a very important chapter. Matthew chapter 12, we see that the Jewish leaders formally rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They reject him. They say, you are not from God. You are from Satan. And then Jesus changes his whole message. Previously, he had said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's close by. But now, from this point forward in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is is different. And he says this. Look at me at verse 3. He told them many things in parables, speaking about the kingdom. Saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples were confused by this. So later on they say, hey, hey, Jesus, can, can you explain that to me? Because I, I didn't quite get it. And so the explanation is in verse 18 and following in that same chapter. Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. So this is Jesus saying, this is the, these are going to be the responses to the gospel. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now that's the first type of seed. That's the first type of response. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the second type of response is initial reception, but then over the long haul, what happens? They fall away. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and in another 30. So Jesus gives this parable to explain what was going to happen in the church age, to, to explain the different responses to the message of the gospel. And these are the different responses to Jesus himself. And that is what we see here in John 6. This is a, this is a sad verse, a sad moment in Jesus' ministry, but it is the natural conclusion of what has preceded it. If you follow along with me, we see this progression. And this is how we, we see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that grumbling and, and murmuring are the beginning of rebellion in Scripture. That if you grumble when you are confronted, if you trust in yourself rather than in God's Word, if you, if you refuse to submit to God's Word, it is only a matter of time before what happens. Before you part ways. It's, it's only a matter of time. Jesus knows that and understands that. And he wants us to see it and to understand it as well. And all of these marks of, of false disciples have been presented to us here as a warning. And Jesus describes or this in, in detail 
so that we would know these warning signs, so we would watch out for them in our own lives. And again, there is much for us to learn as true disciples in this. If this is what a false disciple looks like, then what does a true disciple look like? Well, a false disciple, uh, if they grumble over truth, they trust in themselves and refuse to obey Christ, well... A true disciple is going to rejoice in the truth, right? When, when confronted, they're going to rejoice. They're not going to grumble. When we, we rejoice in the truth, we will also trust in Christ and his word. And we will submit every area of our lives to his lordship. Rather than, than walking away from him, every time we are confronted with his word, we draw nearer and nearer to him. Because as we, as we turn in those small sins... We march ever closer to Jesus, becoming more and more like him as our life continues onward. Again, earlier I spoke of, of life-altering events, those watershed moments in history and in our individual lives. And I, and I would say this, that the biggest watershed moment in any one of our personal lives is when we place our faith and our trust in Christ. There is no greater change. There is no greater moment when, when things will be altogether different. Again, yes, marriage and kids are, are very much that way. But following Jesus, putting your trust in him, that is the biggest decision. That is the, the greatest watershed moment in any of our lives. And we are called to look to Him in faith, to believe that He alone can save, to believe that He is the Son of God, which is a hard truth to accept, right? Now, He is the Son of God, that He came because we couldn't save ourselves. Another hard truth to accept. But that is what we must be convinced of, and then we must place our faith and our trust alone in Him, solely in Him. Again, if, if you are here this morning and, and that is news to you, that, that is something that you are unfamiliar with, I would, I would plead with you to consider it. I, I would plead with you to, to think about all that you have heard of, all of the, the claims of Christ. And I would encourage you to place your faith and trust in Christ alone uh, and experience the new life that he Brings the new life that that he promises, not just eternal life in the future, but in the future, but a transformed life now. Uh, and if you have already placed your faith and your trust in Christ, this is a, a warning for us. This is the, the first steps of, of what it looks like to to say, hey, I've been following Jesus, but again, it's really easy to to get. Knocked off course, even as we saw in the parables, in the parable of the <clears throat> of the soils, right? And there were there were multiple soils that received the word, but only one that continued and bore fruit. And so we must persevere. We must faithfully walk before Christ, and that is what we are called to do. And may today be an encouragement for us to walk in faith all the time, guarding our hearts uh, and encouraging one another to walk faithfully as well.